Overall, the president's job rating is not in a good place when you're seeking re-election, sitting at just 41%, driven by the 58% of Americans who disapprove of how he is handling the economy right now. Just 30% of independents approve of the job Biden is doing overall. The 2024 Republican presidential primary field is taking shape. The battle lines are becoming clearer, and so is the field of candidates. Is the odds on favorites if you look at the polling still Trump versus Biden? That seems to be it, but it's just way too early to tell. I'm more angry now and I'm more committed now than I ever was. Big challenge for these candidates is going to be how do they navigate Donald Trump? And, and how do they navigate Ron DeSantis? You and I have a rendezvous with destiny. Welcome back to the Ruthless Variety program. A very big week. Boy, oh boy, did it start out hot on Monday, huh? Yeah, I mean, I tried telling folks it would be a crazy day, and, you know, as usual, the warning came true. <laughs> you've got you've got remarkable consistency on that, and so far you haven't missed. Not not once. Not ha- once. Have not missed. So, uh, in case you all missed the news, I don't know how that's possible, but it was really a, a Black Monday on cable news. Uh, with the news that Tucker Carlson was out at Fox came what as somewhat of a shock to I think just about everybody. He's the highest rated cable news host in the country. He has an incredibly large audience, and there didn't seem to or appear at least externally to be a lot of uh, motioning about that kind of thing. Um, clearly, this comes a week removed from. The settlement that Fox had with Dominion um, over their, you know, upcoming defamation trial. It was ultimately settled ahead of time for something just shy of $800 million. Uh, so you knew that there was going to be some changes. Uh, that is one that I didn't foresee, Smash. No, I didn't foresee it either. I mean, obviously, the guy's got a very successful show. A lot of people tune in. And... You know, it's often said that, that the Fox audience would watch anybody in those primetime slots, and I think there's some truth to that, but there's also a lot of truth to the fact that Tucker's show was special. He really pushed the envelope on news. He really had interesting stories that you didn't often see, and and I, I think that it's going to leave a big hole. They've obviously got a lot of talent over there they can try to uh, use to fill it, but, but Tucker's show was very interesting. You know, there's no on-ramp or off-ramp to the decision, right? I mean, on Friday, he exited his show by saying, see him Monday, and they were promoting Tucker Carlson interviews as late as Monday morning. And so, you know, you kind of wonder <laughs> how this whole thing came about and when it came about, because it didn't appear like there was a lot of people in on this decision until it ultimately was made. Well, and then the other thing is, like you were saying, in the wake of this Dominion settlement, you know, a lot, a lot of money. Yeah, a lot of money. Uh, to part with the number one guy in all cable news is it's bold. A, it's a bold, it's yeah. a bold move. It's a bold move. Now, I, I suspect we'll be hearing more about this over the next few days. Although, look, Fox is nothing if not great business people. They have been over the years. They've figured out how to manage their own business. Uh, you know, the likelihood of not having. Uh, sort of mutual defamation over this thing is real high, right? They, they come to settlements and they move on as they did with, you know, O'Reilly was the king of cable right, news. Right, and I mean, look, Glenn Beck too. Glenn and, Beck. And I feel like every time there's been a shakeup over there, you know, people have said, oh, well, you know, if the talent leaves, the audience leaves. And I mean, to Ashbrook's point, they've been remarkably capable of enduring as the talent changes. Yeah, I, I've always felt like it was an underappreciated aspect of what 
Roger Ailes and Fox had built from, you know, 2000 basically to today is that they built a primetime audience that was there to see Fox. And there are a lot of people that come and go. You, you realize in this line of work that uh, there's literally zero people that are indispensable, right? We don't live in the times of Walter Cronkite. Right. Uh, a lot of people can do the, the top hat and cane routine and, and you know, in anywhere. But they built a really durable product. I mean, look, I think that a good friend of the program, Megan Kelly, obviously one of the most talented people of all time in a primetime slot at Fox. Her show was remarkably popular. When they moved out of, when she went to, to NBC, um, you know, a lot of us had questions about whether that could ever be figured out. Like mm-hmm. whether you could get ratings in that time slot again without Megan because she had just sort of become this big thing and they figured that out too now you know you can look at the changes that have undergone under uh, fox over the last few years you can agree or disagree with them but i think the point remains is that a fox audience is a pretty loyal audience yeah it's it's you know it is gold-plated their brand is gold-plated with the audience and I, i think it's interesting you mentioned megan because not only has Fox continued to be successful, but Megan has taken off. Yeah, so she. She's done gangbusters on her own, doing her own thing. And I wonder if this, if the Tucker post-Fox world will have follow a similar model. Because remember, Tucker was a media personality, a newsman in his own right, before he went to Fox. Yeah. You know, Daily Caller, and he had uh, shows, uh, Crossfire, and other things. The guy is very talented. Yeah, I mean, he was doing serious TV before most of us were tying our shoes. Yeah, you could see him thriving in this uh, new media environment in a way that, you know, that, that Megan has. Yeah. Well, I doubt that he disappears. But but one person who definitely, I don't think, will be thriving. <laughs> we also got the news that CNN fired Don Lemon. Yeah. And, I mean, it's a, de- it's a developing story because they're tweeting back and forth at each other, Don Lemon and CNN PR, where... Don Lemon, I guess he did a screenshot of an email that he had sent. Yeah, let me let me read it because yeah. I think this yeah, is where this is what Don Lemon tweeted out a screenshot. He didn't tweet; he screened out a, uh, he tweeted out a screenshot of something that he wrote here. I was informed this morning by my agent that I have been terminated by CNN. <laughs> I am stunned. Yeah. <laughs> first of all, are you? First of all, if he's stunned, he is the only one. Yeah, I'm stunned. Uh, After 17 years at CNN, I would have thought that someone in management would have the decency to tell me directly. At no time uh, was I ever given any indication that I would not be able to continue to do the work that I have loved at the network. It's clear that there are some larger issues at play. Oh. Oh, interesting. Oh. Interesting. With that said, I want to thank my colleagues. You know what would have been really funny is if somebody in CNN PR bought a burner phone and texted Don Lemon to tell him he was fired. I mean, like, that's the thing is, like, the deranged shit he did. Right. That was Variety who had the article Yeah, it was like a couple weeks ago that he was basically harassing colleagues, like, tearing up papers on their desk. You know, he bought a burner phone I guess and like started texting anonymously and I mean they've all known about this for like 15 years I'll make how could he possibly be shocked especially like when like my theory of this and we talked about this on Megyn Kelly was like this calls coming from inside the house like someone at CNN needs to have the the case for firing this guy Mm -hmm. yeah and they were doing that in variety I think they were doing that and I I think we covered this on the program and on Megyn's show basically saying this looks to us like 
somebody's laying the predicate yeah. to get rid of Don Lemon. So, <clears throat> so CNN wasn't going to leave it at that. No, no, no. And I think it's funny, Michael, that you mentioned CNN's PR department because they immediately released a statement after Don Lemon's screenshot saying that Don Lemon's statement about this morning's events is inaccurate. <laughs> it's you- nice to know, by the way, before you go on, it's nice to know that somebody over in management is concerned about Don Lemon's inaccuracy. Yeah. You know, I just we, wish... We've gone for like 20 years without <laughs> you, even raising an eyebrow. The first time CNN's like, wait a minute, we got to make sure Don Lemon is accurate. Yeah, <laughs> but I think that's, that's the point. They never did this after one of his shows. <laughs> we got to get that uh, CNN fact checker. What's his name? That guy. Daniel Dale. Yeah, I'll get Daniel Daniel Dale. <laughs> He was, uh, the, the statement went on to say he was offered an opportunity to meet with the management, but instead released a statement on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> oh, poor Don Lemon. It was allegedly harassing every female colleague that uh, came within spitting distance. Well, I, what I love most about the statement is he thought he was going to go ahead and preempt, you know, whatever CNN was going to point out so he could sort of control the narrative yeah. but all he ended up doing was reinforcing all of the yeah. stuff that had come out in the variety piece that this guy's like a juvenile psychopath <laughs> yeah you know what i thought was really funny a lot of nikki ha- remember when he said nikki haley was past her prime oh yeah she jumped on that yeah and a lot of her allies were jumping on don lemon this morning yes. and he must be past his prime <laughs> oh it's <laughs> It's amazing. Clearly, clearly. Well, uh, but unlike to your point, Smug, unlike mm-hmm. Tucker, who you know is going to have an audience no matter where he goes or what he does, I'm not sure old Don's got the same. I mean, that's deal the thing is, on. like, who, what audience is there? I mean, we've seen the numbers with CNN. <laughs> we we our sh- this program gets better numbers than CNN. Yeah, there's no audience that's going anywhere with Don Lemon. <laughs> Don Lemon's going home and he's going to buy a burner phone and he's going to send crazy ass messages. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, but all of that is to say, what a wild Monday in the news industry, huh? You just don't see that kind of thing. Yeah, well, you know, they they say that these things usually come in threes. Yeah. And so I think this is the time when we need to let our audience know that Smug, this you, you, you have now <laughs> recorded your last show. The mic has been cut. Your last words were on Don Lemon. <laughs> But seriously, you do feel for people for not, you know, if they don't have any any uh, sort of insight into these things. There's a lot of people who work on Tucker's show, some of which we know. Yeah. No, so he's, uh, he's got a great crew. I mean, it is just, he's got an all-star production team, and I'm, I'm confident this is not the last we've heard of Tucker or the last we've heard of any of them. Also, you know what? This is kind of a, a seg to our next topic, and they actually might be intertwined, hmm. is... So, you know, rumors have started coming out. I think the Washington Post had the story that uh, Biden is going to announce re-election today, this Tuesday. So maybe, well, like, you know, you know they, they, they want to deal with this and move on and then have that big piece of news just take over the discussion, you know? Huh. Because, I mean, come Tuesday, when yeah, he changes. announces, it's going to, you know, that's what the news cycle is going to be. The presidential election is on. And for any news organization that is going through change a presidential election certainly a stability that you're looking for mm-hmm. as there is one story in town and it is happening so according to the washington post and i love the way that they frame the whole i mean this yeah listen listen it's, so it's, it's inside the final days before biden announces his re-election but okay great yeah no, I, I can imagine how dramatic it is uh, yeah, but like nap after nap and pudding like oh wow but also just imagine sitting there and be like oh i can get insight into the the thoughts and analysis of the insiders and before it actually 
who gives a shit but anyway <laughs> by the by the time air force one returned from ireland in the pre-dawn hours of april 15 president biden's plans to announce his re-election campaign were already in motion a videographer soon met him in rehoboth beach delaware where biden spent the weekend after driving uh, in uh, dover at 2:26 a.m with his sister valerie his son hunter the president shot parts of the launch video over the next two days before returning to the White House on Sunday night, according to people familiar with events, who, like others in this story, requested anonymity to describe private conversations. And then, if I remember correctly, the following Monday at 9 a.m., the White House put a lid on the day. They called it a day at 9 a.m., so he's like, oh, boy, got back from vacation, (laughs) went to the beach house, shot a video. Which is what it was. I mean, we covered this when he went to Ireland. This was not some, like, you didn't get a trade deal out of this. It wasn't some negotiation over anything. It was basically like him, he wanted to go to to Ireland. Yeah, he wanted to go to Ireland. Hunter wanted to hitch a ride on that. And it's funny, the New York Post also just had an article where they're like, Hunter Biden might be living at the White House specifically to avoid his baby mama, the, the, the stripper in, I believe, Arkansas, who he refuses. You know, he tried to say that the child wasn't his. DNA test proved that it was. And Joe Biden refuses to acknowledge the child exists. Like when he talks about his grandkids, he always leaves off the number. Yeah, they always say like six instead of seven or yeah. something like I forget the exact number, but but that is right. I mean, he's just specifically eliminated this child. So it's great that his taxpayers were paying to put a roof over Hunter Biden's head. <laughs> you know, famous and, and very, you know, uh, uh, accomplished energy company management dude <laughs> needs taxpayer money to put a roof over his head hitching rides to Ireland and artist and, and artist and yeah. part-time podiatrist <laughs> every great every great artist needs a patron and it just so happens that we are his yeah. Yeah. as taxpayers we will support him the same way the Italians supported Da Vinci <laughs> <laughs> So once Biden returned to the White House, he and First Lady Jill Biden met with other senior aides to finalize the details of a re-election launch. And after the Bidens had signed off on the plans, the officials ramped up their final preparations. Other staffers were dispatched to build a campaign website. A campaign website that we're talking about in the last week? That's ridiculous. Is this sitting incumbent president of the United States? You go like, oh yeah, I guess we need an online presence. I don't believe this for a second, dude. All this has to have been in motion for a couple months. Well, does he not? I'm embarrassed to say that I didn't check JoeBiden.com to see if it actually had, if they didn't update it since 2020, that is really something. They're like, okay, got uh, someone go to the store, buy a copy of Front Page, right, Duncan? That's like how you do it when you want to build a, a big campaign website. <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> what is this, Dot Matrix? How do we make this thing work? <laughs> what do you... PC load letter. It's PC load letter. <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, so they built the website, uh, and they, they started in on what they say... Uh, is going to amount to some kind of a $2 billion effort and counting. Um, I mean, obviously. That's a lot of corporations and CEOs and fund managers that are just like, yeah, I mean, we kind of like the way things are going, you know? If we've got our investments in China, Joe Biden's 100% our guy. Yep, yep. So this is an interesting line. Uh, Biden had been in no hurry to announce happy to stay above the fray while Republicans battled it out, but suddenly the reasons to delay were outweighed by the reasons to push ahead. Hmm. We've talked about this. Mm -hmm. 
the reasons to push ahead are you're the incumbent president of the United States. And again, it wasn't because of Republicans that he needed to announce. It was because Democrats were starting to get a little anxious. Yeah, and, and, and just like this next line says, Biden, 80, is seen by many Democrats as having saved the country from Donald Trump, but also as an aging figure with an uncertain future. I mean, you know, uh, I, I think it was Chris Christie who pointed out that he's passed... You know, the, the you look at the kind of expected age for an individual there. I mean, you know, science, if you trust the science, it's not that great a chance this guy's going to last four more years when, you know, I mean, folks, you've seen him. He can't can get up they, Air Force One stairs. And his people know. Uh, they may not have been ready with the website, but they were certainly ready with the internal machinery to block any debates. Did you guys see this news over the weekend mm-hmm. after Robert F. Kennedy Jr. announced he was running for president? Mm. It was immediately followed up by quotes all over the place from Democrat operatives saying there won't be any debates. Yeah. President Biden will, will not be debating Robert F. Kennedy Jr. because they want to prevent the same thing. The same thing from happening to Biden that happened to Jimmy Carter. That's why I think he met Kennedy. with his uncle. He, he met with Carter. He was like, "Okay, how do I stop the Kennedys from from taking this from me?" <laughs> He's like, "Well, either get the CIA or here's the plan." <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh, we're laughing. It's a parody. 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 It's a parody. We're going to end up with Tucker. <laughs> Unbelievable. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Jesus. Fuck. Um, I I do find that uncertain future hilarious. Like, what what do you mean on what's uncertain? Yeah, say say it out loud. The guy, there's a great chance that he croaks. Everyone, honestly, <laughs> a lot of folks are shocked that you know. I mean, his life expectancy. He should be super happy he's made it this far, <laughs> given the state that he's in. You know, like you watch those war movies and the pilot's got like the wing shot off and he somehow makes it on the aircraft carrier. That's Biden on a daily basis. Dude. Like <laughs> these bones are still rolling somehow. <laughs> Meanwhile, Trump is pushing for a potential third Republican nomination as his legal problems escalate and the GOP voters try to decide whether his appeal is worth the chaos and unpredictability that tend to follow in his wake. Biden's announcement video, which is expected to run between 90 seconds and two minutes. Oh, thanks for the... Thanks for the... Jeez. I mean, what, like... Thanks for the detail on that. Important color. Again, who gives a shit? Uh, It's slated to be released Tuesday morning on the four-year anniversary of his 2020 campaign launch. So we brought that up last week, too, Mm -hmm. saying, you know, this is is a year, you know, four years removed from when he announced the last time. If he blows past this date, good Lord, like anybody's guess what what they're thinking over there. Apparently, they're thinking along the same lines. Yep. Four years ago, he campaigned from his own basement. Now he's going to campaign for hours. Yep, there you go. Two people involved in the re-election effort say they expect Julie Chavez Rodriguez, currently the director of White House's Intergovernment Affairs, to manage the campaign. Now, I read this, and I... I read that she was a relative, like a granddaughter of Cesar Chavez. What? No way. Get out of here. Let's look this up. Because... Honestly, I I think I saw this in a reputable publication this morning, and I was like, come on, man. No way. Come on. That would be amazing. I mean, you never know. Like, uh, uh, San Francisco did have uh, a DA who was the son of, of two weather underground terrorists. So, 
I mean, at this point, never... and is, isn't Justin Trudeau the son of Fidel Castro? <clears throat> many people are saying. Many are saying. Many people are uh, saying. So from the Wikipedia, she's the daughter of Linda Chavez Rodriguez and Arturo Rodriguez and the granddaughter of American labor activist Helena Fabella. Mm. Um, uh, Chavez, an American labor leader, Cesar Chavez. Wow! Mm. So there it is. It was. It was right. Yeah, yeah. You. I mean, this is like you can't make this stuff up, can you? Yeah, it's incredible. I mean, I will say that is like the enduring legacy of Bernie running against Hillary, right? Where he might have lost the primary, but he he took over the party. Like, yeah, it's, there, it's, it's, it's just a communist outfit at this point. Yeah, I mean, it genu- genuinely is. So anyway, this lady uh, is is going to run the campaign. Pretty amazing that none of the names that you'd heard before are going to be running things now. I think a lot of his Man. former folks are busy, like, helping TikTok, right? Well, <laughs> <laughs> oh, They're all lobbying for TikTok now, and the money's better there than the campaign. <laughs> but imagine how many cooks you're going to have in the kitchen on this deal. Mm-hmm. Right? It's not like Biden, like those people are going away. I mean, he's president of the United States. They're still all in the... And uh, it's a long campaign season. You know there's going to be multiple times when he, like, fucks up. He <laughs> falls down the stairs or something. Like, it's clockwork. This guy's going to do something that then the cable news cycle is going to be like, should he be running? Should well, he I, not well, be well, running? Well, because that's where the American people already are. 70% of Americans don't want him to seek re-election. Yeah, that's, that, was according, yeah that is according to a, a recent poll that was out Sunday from NBC News. 70% of Americans do not want Biden to run for a second term. It was basically like, I, I read that poll, and it was like two things that were very, like the vast majority of Americans did not want either Biden or Trump, like 70% or whatever and yet both were just sort of commanding presences in their own within their own party um amazing situation we've got ourselves headed towards right if you thought the last election was bad (laughs) wait till you see this it's like it's like season one of true detective like time is a flat circle and we're all living in this hell that repeats over and over and over again (laughs) it's so good you know best carousel ever (laughs) it is look it's definitely entertaining this NBC poll shows 41% of Americans plan to vote for Biden in 2024. 47% so they'll back a Republican nominee. I mean, this is an incumbent president. Again, that's a that's some rough numbers. And I know, I know, look, we've talked about this ad nauseum. I know that the Biden people feel like it doesn't matter. If Trump's the nominee, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. But he never had 41%. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's a low, low number to have in the bank. And like Ashford pointed out, he had the benefit of campaigning from a basement. Yeah. His rally was a bunch of cars honking at him. You know, like, he benefited from the most ideal situation for him where, you know, ballots are mailed out. All Like, every election rule was essentially thrown out the window the way that a lot of these governors, the, the, the way it went down. And... He's not going to have that this cycle. He doesn't have the no, benefit he, of being the able honking to cars. Hide. Yeah, right. The right, cars right. aren't honking anymore. <laughs> it's it's <laughs> the days of the honking cars Can are you long gone. We went through that. <laughs> the honking yeah. it, and also also remember the circles on the ground where everybody would be socially distanced <laughs> at his rally, and there'd be like twenty people out there doing a light little it golf was clap. So absurd. It was absurd. But yeah, you know, he benefited from COVID and from the lockdowns and everything because he could campaign. And the in media his pushing the lie right. that like and everyone's dying because of Trump. And then, right. meanwhile, post vaccine, post Regeneron, post all these things for for helping on COVID have come out. That year that Biden was president after Trump, more people died 
right. in the year that Trump was president. And there were no, there was no regeneration. Like, there's no nothing. Like these, these numbers that Biden has here remind me a lot of Hillary Clinton. Mm. You know, the the problem is Trump's numbers aren't where he was in 2016. Right. right. Like like the Democrat. Or nominee. 2020, to be honest. Well, yeah. I mean, th- that's ultimately the problem is like Biden has an uphill climb to convince these people, including a majority of Democrats, slight majority, about half of Democrats. Are like he's the guy. Yeah. But like Trump has that problem, too. And in particular, he has it with independent voters. And he didn't have that in 2016. Also, and I think, God willing, finally, it'll matter to voters is this economy is not improving. Right. Things have continued to get worse. <clears throat> you know, so I think. Maybe finally voters will be cognizant of the fact that inflation was not transient. It wasn't fake. It wasn't what the Biden administration told us that, oh, don't worry about this, Jack. Everything's going to be fine. It is not going away. Yeah, it's I, persistent and it's crushing people's wallets. I think ultimately you're right. This is going to be up to the voters because if you look at what the liberal media has done with Biden over the last year, he hasn't had a press conference and who knows how yeah. long. He hasn't done a serious interview and who knows how long. So even if the liberal media gives him a pass and doesn't force him to do a press conference, lets him campaign from the basement again, I'm not so sure voters are going to look past that this and time. And, you know, uh, somewhat of an aside, you know, when you talk about how biased the media is, did you guys see over the weekend Jen Psaki, quote, interviewing John Kerry? Oh, yeah. Where they go get ice cream. Yeah. <laughs> and then she interviews AOC, who was like, I think the government should ban Tucker Carlson's speech. And Jen Psaki just nods along like, this is good. I'm a journalist. <laughs> <laughs> it's bonkers stuff. But so anyway, it's worth putting back into contest because there's been a ton of different polling out there. And a lot of this measuring sort of Trump versus DeSantis versus the field. And what's pretty clear, Trump has a, a commanding edge within Republican primary voters right now. But almost all of these polls also show, including a new uh, Wall Street Journal poll from over the weekend, that DeSantis holds a edge against Biden. Um, he holds a three-point advantage over Biden in a general election, while Trump trails Biden by three. So there's like a six-point swing there, depending on whether you're... I mean, it's, a, it's like basically a six-point penalty of, for Trump. I mean, which is why Donald Trump's attacking Ron DeSantis every day i mean like this is obvious and like that's not a knock on donald trump like donald trump should be doing that yeah if he wants to win this primary but like the confidence of the trump campaign belies the fact that i think it's pretty obvious that they are concerned about desantis being able to make an electability argument it also makes you understand why the talking point from donald trump himself is i created this guy like i gave him an endorsement it's the reason why he won the race because that sort of cuts against the electability it's like i made you i'm the reason you're electable because i endorsed you yep and trump obviously has a very big lead out of the gate but if i'm the trump campaign i'm worried that that lead will not last forever you know it won't last forever and after everything they've lobbed at desantis on a day-in and day-out basis, DeSantis is still kind of where he was two months ago. So it's like all of their attacks haven't really, I mean, maybe they've refocused some of the base into Trump's camp, but they haven't really taken the shine off of DeSantis. Yeah, I don't think so, but I think it's what we talked about, I think about a month ago on the show, that like what this was was a demonstration project by Donald Trump and his team. Like, this is what awaits you if you decide to get in this race. Yeah. You know? And I I mean, they've been very direct about that. And they had a pretty strong week last week in that regard with DeSantis coming to Washington and basically all the Florida endorsements going to Trump. Yeah. Um, 
fascinating stuff. You guys want some animal news? Absolutely. Always. So, you know, we cut, talked a couple of weeks ago about the the hospital in Alaska. Yeah. The yeah. moose. The, the moose rolls up. And then a couple of weeks before that, it was a jump-kicking moose just <laughs> kicking a, a random person, like, in Alaska. <laughs> so, the moose are really, like... They're, they're a problem. They're a problem. Out of control. I mean, they're not quite on par with Hank's crew, and they're not quite on par with the monkeys, uh, who are just menaces. Yeah. But they're getting there. So, uh, this is from uh, ADN.com. Uh Kenai, Alaska. Is that how you pronounce it? Kenai. Yeah. That sounds yeah. about right. Employees at a movie theater in Kenai got a big surprise this week when a curious moose strolled into the lobby and rooted through the trash. <laughs> then after a few minutes, uh, with a McDonald's Happy Meal box stuck to its snout, uh, the visit, which happened... It just left. It, it rolled it just, up. It just got out. It went through the trash, grabs a Happy Meal. It's like my work here is done. In a movie theater, too. <laughs> so these things, I, they don't, they have not separated the, the common courteous distinction between the wild, which yeah. is their habitat, and like bricks and mortar but, facilities. But I mean, that's not a bad argument in Alaska. Like, I, one of the reasons I love heading out there is it looks like a place that humans have only like very minimally touched. Like if you want to see nature, if you want to go fishing, if you want to go out in the woods, like the air is different out in Alaska, you know, yep. it's just incredible. So, you know, I think the moose have good reason to be like, everything is ours, right? The question is how are our are, are people gonna, you know, they, you have to take the stand. Yeah, it, they're it, not going through, you're not going through a movie theater if I'm there, not the, on my watch. The culture is totally different up there. It's like. You have the animal version of like a Sherman tank that just strolls through downtown. Everybody's like, all right, give him a wide berth. You know, nobody picks up a rifle and is like, all right, I have dinner. Yeah, right. Or or like, I don't know, have some acute fear of this thing rising up and giving you a drop kick to the face. What are the what are the carrying laws in, in Alaska? Is it like I'm sure there are none. It's no. gotta be like open it's like fucking open PvP, like you know, it's fucking Alaska. Well it's gotta be because like there's <laughs> no other way to survive unless and, you have that. And that's why I never get in these stories. Cause like if I were fortunate enough to be in a situation where I've got a firearm on me and a moose is Within twenty yards, you're burying that dude. Moose. I'm, I'm gonna be. I'm gonna hand my phone and be like, dude, get this on video, and I'm gonna <laughs> fucking kill that moose. I mean, like, how how awesome would that be? You'd have the best story. You know, you'd be like, hey, look what I found on the way home. I just, I'm, I'm also, yeah. I'm also surprised there isn't any other sort of non-lethal deterrent. Well, this is. I'm, right? glad, I'm glad you you raised this. Like point. bear mace exists. Right. Is there something like that? There that is. would just there make is. it angry and crazy. Well, yeah, yeah. that's now the it's thing. blind and angry. Right. It's and got like <laughs> massive horns. <laughs> Just, just stomping cars on Main Street. Tear the like, shit out of the movies. How do we even put this in hard mode for killing this fucking thing? I'm glad I'm, I'm glad you raised it. I'm really, really glad you raised it because shooting is not always the answer. And with a moose, we have something that we can do. If you've ever seen the show Rocky and Bullwinkle, yeah, we know that a flying squirrel, when paired with a moose, is a combination that can turn the moose into something that's a little more intelligent. And so what I would recommend is to take the advice of Rocky and Bullwinkle, find a flying squirrel mm -hmm. in the area around Alaska, and have it lead the moose out. Yeah. That's smart. Use the animal kingdom against itself. The animal kingdom's definitely using us against ourselves. Right. They put humans against each other all the time. I don't know how you don't kill time. it. Dude, like you would officially have a moose's head in your house, and you'd be like, yeah, he rolled up on me. 
this is what happens. Like if you if I go to a guy's house and he's got a bunch of like animal heads on the wall and he's got a story of like yeah I bagged that guy and yeah, yeah I bagged this guy here I'm like this is great stories dude in the, I want to hear more. In the case of the movie theater, it was a cow that walked in. It was not there were no antlers on this moose, so you don't want to put that on your wall. That'd be embarrassing. You at least the yeah, only, you get dinner the out only of it, moose you, still get you want dinner out of it. Well, you could get di- you could get dinner out of it. Yeah. That's true. Can you eat moose? How is it compared to like venison? Because I love venison. It's better than nothing. Yeah, that's you know, I mean, if you're hungry, big. it would feed a lot of homeless people. It, well, there well, again. See, there you go. So if you're making public policy, from what I understand, if you're making public policy in Alaska, there are two things that happen with the Ashbrook policy here. The first is everyone in any building has to have a cage with a flying squirrel. Yes. You have to have that. Must. And you just keep that thing alive. You just you don't, you don't never know where you're going to use it. Yep. And you, you take it to the shelter so it's nice and fresh. You know? You're sol- it's two birds with one stone. You're solving a public menace. And poverty. Right. I mean, I, I fully support this plan. Right. So, and then the second piece is that once the squirrel does what it does, uh, and you're able to safely capture the moose, uh, then it's a, a feeding program for feeding the and clothing. I mean, that yeah. hide is not small. Yeah. Think of how many people it could keep warm. Yeah. <laughs> and I bet, dude, I bet moose is terrific. I bet it tastes great. Hundred percent tastes. Great. Not if he's eating happy meals. I mean, that's the thing. <laughs> I mean, you don't have to worry. He's not too lean. <laughs> <laughs> So the second story we have comes out of Wisconsin, uh, where deputies respond to a driver's curious call of a bobcat in my car. The Amazing. Game video show. Amazing. Uh, deputies in Wisconsin responded to an unusual call Tuesday night after a driver reported that a bobcat was inside his car and refused to leave. <laughs> I mean, this is uh, just right off the bat. <laughs> what attempts have been made at this point? Yeah. Have you tried? You, you're trying to talk to this thing. You roll the windows down. Like, what is? What is? After multiple attempts to get, it's refusing to leave. What well, is that? Well, entail? well, it was inside the the vehicle's front grill. Like, apparently, had bit a hole in it or. Damn, they can get through it. that shit? Yeah, yeah. And this is uh, unbelievable. I assume you would do that because you're trying to get warm or something, right? Like maybe the, yeah. the engine was hot, you know. Yeah, and I've so, heard of mice do that yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, you got to be careful with that rats getting in your car. Did you guys ever Did you guys ever hear that story? This might have been a uniquely Minnesota thing, but there was a morning show, KQRS, in Minnesota where they would play some hilarious audio from time to time. And there was this guy who had a deer stuck in his car. Inside the car? Inside the car. Was it like during a wreck it came through the windshield or something like that? Or how? I forget how I it got I never understand in. how they he, get there. I think he may have, I think it hit may have been like Tommy Boy yeah. where he hit the thing. <laughs> and it woke up. And it woke up. Now he's riding shotgun. He's like, well, I mean, you've already fucked my day up. You might as well drop me off at home. I'm going to see if I can find that audio. <laughs> it's one of the top five funniest fucking things I've ever heard in my entire life. Hey, fellas, we've got the audio. Come on. We've got it. We've got it. But I, I do need to provide a little bit of a warning here for the audience. <laughs> if memory serves, there is a, a fair amount of blue uh, commentary. It is very, very heavy on the language. So just FYI. Let the kids know. Let me tell you what. I'm, into, I'm going down the motherfucking road driving my car and mine and my own goddamn <laughs> and a motherfucking deer jumped out and hit my car. Okay, sir, are you injured? Now, let me tell you. <laughs> He's like, no, you're going to listen to this whole story. I'm 
The dog's after him. The dog is attacking him. Let me tell you. (laughs) So that's exactly how I remember it. So it was this radio station. I have no idea whether that's even authentic. But I do remember growing up listening to this thing on a morning show. KQRS in Minnesota, and I'm so glad you found it because it is hilarious. My favorite part is that he starts telling the story, and you know the dispatcher, whatever, <laughs> is trying to cut to the chase so he can help. <laughs> and he's like, "Oh no, you're gonna listen to this whole story." <laughs> it is. It's a little unclear, like when the various animals entered the scene. Yeah, because you had a deer uh, that he hit. Right. Uh, that at some point he it sounded like he loaded it up. Yeah. And it bit him in the in the neck. neck. <laughs> and then he's in the phone booth making this call. It sounds like and a dog a dog who could smell the deer is now attacking. <laughs> the bad luck for this guy. <laughs> I love the dispatch, sir. Are you hurt? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so good. But it seems like directly apropos here because you know now he's got this bobcat. Uh, it, it. <sighs> I love how this continues. It says, numerous deputies were curious when they heard the radio dispatcher describe the call and responded to the driver's location. I love how like they're like, okay, everybody, let's head this way. This sounds like something interesting. <laughs> no, I, you know everybody's packing a lunch. They're like, I can't wait to see this shit. I, I mean, that's the thing. is like the life of a police officer, like if it comes across the radio that there's a bobcat in a car and it's refusing to leave, I'm rolling up to that. Let's I see where this see adventure it. goes. Uh, Lucas said three deputies were sh- quote unquote shocked when they arrived and found a live bobcat inside the vehicle's front grill. So it wasn't even in the... Yeah. No, it was in the grill. In the grill. Just in the grill. The sheriff's office shared a two-minute video uh, body cam showing the warden and deputies working to remove the big cat from the driver's car. The bobcat did not appear happy about being (laughs) dragged out of its hiding place. Uh, The big cat twisted, turned, and flipped through the air as the warden, in one swift motion, pulled the animal from the car's grill and into the bed of a pickup truck. The bobcat was then safely returned to the wild. I mean, that's kind of a boss move, though. In in one move, the dude just yanks it and tosses it into the truck? Yeah. yeah. A a bobcat? No, police have a much more difficult job than anybody listening to this show has any idea. These guys... (laughs) These guys have to do everything. Yeah, is somebody trained in bobcat removal? I mean, that. Hold on, let me back up. This is in Wisconsin. Yeah. Do we know there are bobcats in Wisconsin? Clearly, yeah, I think so. Who knows how long this guy hitched to ride? There are bobcats in Ohio. There are. Yeah. So where I grew up, outside of Hamilton, Ohio, was a relatively rural area. We, I saw a bobcat in our front yard back in the woods. I mean, you hear about wolves and bears and moose and shit like that, but a bobcat. Not so much. It's a dangerous animal. I well, mean, yeah. they're, they're and, and, good animals, though. I think they do a good job. They kill all the pests. You know, <laughs> well, it's they're good. kind of crazy. It's, That's fun to watch. It, it's, <laughs> it's good. To, it's good to have. It's good to have one around. Like if you live in Florida, sometimes people have a black snake under their house because they know that the snake is going to take out all the pests under their house. Somebody sees it. Oh, what's that black snake? We got to get out of here. You're like, no, 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 no. That guy's actually helping us. A bobcat can be the same thing, but if it's coming after cops, if it's trying to bite people 
who are actually trying to help everybody, I think you just got to take it down. And I love how every year there's a story somewhere that someone's like, oh, I found a lost kitten. And they're like, okay, after three weeks, this thing's bigger than it's my not dog. A kid. It's not a kid. <laughs> like, yeah. yeah. Actually, it's a bobcat. I have a feeling like if anybody actually pushed the buy it now button on you, Smug, where like, they're like, <laughs> here's the millions that you can never spend, that like you're definitely going to build some arena in your backyard and fill it with animals I and mean, watch them fight all day. I mean, that is probably first thing on the agenda. <laughs> My cash out plan is 100% build the, the animal pit. Like once and for all, we find out who's the top dog of the animal kingdom. And then there's a, a full tab on DraftKings to be able to bet on what you live stream. Dude, oh. it would work. This would work. People would love it. Oh, yeah. PETA would be upset. I mean, real people. The real Americans. But then you need to it. hire Ashbrook to figure out how to get, because he doesn't care for that totally, one bit. Totally. I'll give you the first equity stake. Okay. <laughs> Terrific. Thank Terrific. you. Terrific. All right. So there's the least surprising news of the, of the year. This came out over the weekend from the Washington Post. Afghanistan has become a terrorism staging ground again, leaks reveal. Oh. Huh. Yes. This is, this is like, this is like, huh. this is like bin Laden. Uh, what is it? What is the, the famous line? Bin Laden determined, determined to attack United States. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right, right, right. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yeah, I got it. Uh, less than two years after President Biden withdrew U.S. personnel from Afghanistan, the country has become a significant coordination site for the Islamic State. The terrorist group plans attacks across Asia, Europe, and conducts aspirational plotting against the United States, according to classified Pentagon assessments that portrays the threat as a growing security concern. Well, no shit. I mean, this is, God bless it. I mean, like, and it's especially frustrating because it's like a weed growing back because you just didn't keep an eye on it. Like, Trump bombed the shit. Like, they were, under Obama, the Islamic State, like, took over Iraq. Yeah. Right? So then he's like, oh, well, fuck it. Trump gets the keys to the White House, just bombs the fuck out of them. It's like problem solved. There's, you know, you had Soleimani causing problems in Iraq. Trump bombs him, turns him into salsa. Problem solved. You know, like we were, we were there where it was like, okay, now we can worry about other things. The economy's booming. And look how quick, like, but also when you just- leave a country the way that Biden did. You know, you have people falling off of planes. You've got the Taliban driving around in Humvees wearing spe- like special forces armor, rolling around with American M16s. That sends a message. Yeah. We're open for business, folks. And that's what's happened. It also it's just so it's so ideological. And look, I realize that Trump wanted out of Afghanistan too, but he still had a, a force of, you know, 2500 plus in Afghanistan that dealt with things. And we had what three years without a single casualty of an American soldier yep. in Afghanistan yep. and yet relative tranquility and peace like I'm not saying it was a perfect place by any stretch of the imagination but I am saying that ISIS wasn't actually plotting to attack this country at that time and like it, be, it was extremely clear who our allies were who our enemies were he bombed the shit out of ISIS he sends Jared to the Middle East and Jared brings world peace <laughs> to the Middle East because the Abraham Accords like this was the craziest golden age and only the crooked journos could fuck it all up. Well, I just don't understand how it got so ideological to a point where if you're looking at a situation where you know there's a large population of people that will do anything they can to organize against this country and our allies, Mm -hmm. you know that because it was happening 30 years prior to Mm 9-11, right? That's just a fact. And then you have 20 years where you've basically dismantled all of that and you're just sitting on top of it and there's not an issue with American casualties or anything else. Think about the ideological commitment that you need to have to say, no, this is a problem. 
what we have now is a problem. I need to change it inextricably and make sure that we abandon Bagram Air Force Base, let a whole bunch of terrorists out of prison while we're doing it, have whole tons of military equipment and and not to mention the translators and all kinds of people who are helping us in the process, abandon all of that shit. And then now you look back and you're like, oh man, I, I can't believe they're plotting to get us again. I got to tell you, it was so enraging watching that frontline special on YouTube about the Tal- you know, the Taliban, Afghanistan, and basically they had this frontline guy there like during the early, like first or second year of the war. And then he recently went back after Biden, you know, botched the, the the withdrawal from afghanistan and he's talking to people there who are like oh yeah well you know uh i was in a prison i was blowing people up but now i'm involved in the government here it's working out pretty decent <laughs> so like that is is what happens when you have a botched withdrawal when you decide i think trying to uh spike the football on a pol- an- an anniversary of september 11th and make it about mm-hmm. me and be like, hey, look how great I am. You, when you politicize this, that's what ends up this, happening. This is the thing that gets me because there are a lot of different views about the war in Afghanistan. But the fact of the matter is our strength in that country was bought at a very, very dear price. Yeah. Yep. And why would we just give it away? Which is exactly what happened. And you talk to guys who were over there. And I have I have friends who were over there um, in various services. And, and they just they couldn't believe it. These are... I, I know some guys who were just severely depressed yeah. after the after the withdrawal and everything that went down because they were like, look, agree with it or not. We had our orders. We did what we were supposed to do. We won. We had something, and they just gave it away. Well, and then, uh, meanwhile, after you know that botched withdrawal gets U.S. service members killed, Biden shows up and he's checking his watch like, can, can, we, can I go? I, I, this is supposed to be my 9-11 celebration. Yeah, these American guys earned that, what mm-hmm. we had. And it was just... I. I I, I st- it's it's hard to talk about honestly. Yeah. I just I don't know what the solution is. Like obviously, like you know, nation building is a failed experiment. Nowhere does that case, is that case made stronger than in Afghanistan. Yeah, two different I, countries tried I, it over thirty years. Right, and um, you know, so I understand the argument that like you could keep a light footprint there for intelligence gathering, just you know, sort of tamp down, you know, uh, this sort of stuff that we're seeing now, but like. At some point, it was America's longest war. Like, would we have to be there indefinitely? Like, basically administrating over a failed state that can't form a government that's not filled with people who make bombs smug? Mm-hmm. Like, like mm-hmm. what is what is the end game there? Like, you know, I don't think the military is set up to permanently babysit a country that that's sucks like this. Like, and I don't it, know. And it shouldn't be asked. I, I, I like, like that's not why people are are our war fighters are there to like yep. basically babysit a country that doesn't want to be a democracy. So, I, I mean, I I don't know what the perfect solution is. I I think obviously this is the downside of totally withdrawing everything and losing seven billion dollars worth of military hardware and empowering ISIS to take over uh, and launch terror attacks from the place. But like. I don't know what the alternative is that that is sustainable. Like, I really don't. Well, the alternative is probably what you have in South Korea. I'm guessing. What? That you've got a We're mil- there military. Forever. <laughs> military. I mean, that's probably right. Because I, I can't see that you've got a, a situation in Afghanistan with a, the entire region with a hub of sort of radical... Yes, but South Korea and Afghanistan are far different countries. Oh, totally. You know I'm, not, I mean? I'm, like, I'm not suggesting for like a the second. troops that are in South Korea 
I assume, live a pretty different life. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, like it's not like Afghanistan suddenly can become this burgeoning liberal democracy that... Look, the guys in the American military are pretty smart. And I think that surely there is something between nation building and leaving all of our equipment there so the terrorists can have right, it. Right. There that, has to be something between totally. the two. That's what I'm driving that, at. Yeah. Whether, that's, whether that's the South Korea model, which seems to have worked, or whether that's a different model, I have confidence that our military could figure it out. I just think that when you put well, a guy like Joe Biden in charge, they, they just they take all the decision-making authority away from the military and, and do what's politically expedient for themselves. And yeah. also, South Korea doesn't have Pakistan next door hiding bin Laden and training people to kill American soldiers. So uh, do, do they've got as long North as Korea next door that trains people to kill. They hate America. Y- y- there's no open border like there is between Afghanistan and Pakistan where, you know, Pakistani intelligence-trained terrorists can go back and forth and right. get safe harbor where U.S. troops are told, okay, you're at the Afghanistan border. you got to stop and watch the terrorists run. Another reason not not to just leave all of our equipment behind and, and all of the advancement that our guys earned. I mean, in all honesty, because you know that Pakistan's right next door and it's so bad. A little bit of black sites never killed anybody, right? <laughs> or maybe they did. But who knows? Um, all right, so you guys want to totally, this story will drive you to the moon. To the moon. Um, have, you caught, have, you, have you checked out what Biden's doing from a regulatory standpoint on, on home buying? Yeah, yeah. Yes. Oh, I saw this in the yeah. Wall Street Journal. So this is from Newsweek. Uh, Biden raises costs for home buyers with good credit to help risky borrowers. A new federal rule could raise the monthly mortgage payments of buyers with good credit scores by over sixty dollars a month, while risky borrowers uh, will get more favorable terms because their fees will be reduced. Starting in May, the current structure of the loan level price adjustment matrix will be upended by the Federal Housing Finance Agency uh, in the hope of addressing housing affordability challenges in the U.S. Boy, I really wonder if there's any effect from the government encouraging <laughs> risky borrowers to buy houses in this country. Is what could, like that go, what could go wrong? Do we have any track record for something like that happening? Yeah, maybe some ninja loans. Yeah. We could set up some of those. Some or crazy maybe arms out some there. Some crazy arms. You know what would be really, I'll tell you a great way to hedge against that, though, is that you take all of them, you package them up, you chop them <laughs> up, you use them as hedges against the market itself. The yeah. yield goes up, but the risk remains low. The risk remains <laughs> this, low. We'll, this we'll could rate work. Them it sounds plus. like this would work. Yeah. You sell them everywhere, and I can't imagine that you have a problem during a downturn in an economy. Yeah. yeah this <laughs> Especially when interest work. rates are going up. And, I I'm, can't imagine. And I mean, just on the principle, on the principle of this is... Yet again, this is left-wing policy that is trying to punish individuals who are responsible and help folks who weren't. I don't even understand how this is legal to do. I don't either. And in fact, I'm pretty sure it's not, right? I mean, it's like everything that comes out of the Biden administration. Ultimately, when it's challenged in court, you get not even fair-minded judges. Like You just have to be somewhat competent. You look at it and be like... Dude, <laughs> right? Like what you're asking us is basically like a a Plessy v. Ferguson type you're decision, just, right? <laughs> I mean, why in the world would you have either race based stuff that they had during the pandemic? Uh-huh. Remember, it was yeah. like we are awarding based on the color of your skin, whether you get a vaccine or whatever, right? right? And now they're just picking indiscriminately communities that have low credit ratings over ones with high credit ratings 
and asking the ones with high credit rating. I mean, basically what they try to do, it looks like to me, is implement a progressive tax code into your home buying. That's exactly it. This is the whole equity bullshit yeah. in a nutshell, where it's like, okay, if, if you tried to, if you save money, if you did things carefully, guess what? We're going to take your money and we're going to give it to folks who didn't. Sure, this is going to be a strain on the system. Sure, we've seen in the past that this leads to the complete downfall of the economy. But guess what? We're going to do it. They're not going to address the actual issue, which is that their policies have caused interest to go up and that the Fed is having to deal with it by hiking interest rates to the fact that, you know, it leaves mortgages unaffordable. But instead of dealing with that, they're going to do their usual left wing bullshit. So can I provide just a little bit more specificity on this rule as as reported by the Wall Street Journal? Under the rule, which goes into effect May 1st, homebuyers with good credit scores over 680 will pay about $40 more each month on a $400,000 loan and upward depending on the size of the loan. Those who make down payments of 20% on their homes will pay the highest fee. What? So <laughs> the most responsible get the, the joy of paying the most. That's exactly right. Unbelievable. <laughs> I don't even know where to begin on this. Is, is, this, is this is a final rule? Like it's just gonna go into place? It says it's gonna take effect May 1, but we're, I mean, honestly, this is, to me, this strikes me as a situation similar to when unilaterally the Biden administration was like oh also uh taxpayers are going to pay for student loans or like when they were saying that oh also uh we're going to have a a rent freeze that that taxpayers are going to have to pick up the bill on you know you saw that you know we you know thanks to god we had courts who were able to step in but this administration doesn't give a shit about legality They, they they act first and then they see what happens right and as the wall street journal points out isn't the whole point, but then putting 20% down on a house so you've got some skin in the game? Yeah. <laughs> Isn't that like, it's just, why Why can't they just, we, why can't we just put 20% down on a house that you can afford and like, I just. I, Progressive I policy, dude. It is just, it makes no sense and always has the exact opposite in, uh, reality of the intent that it was created. Anyway, we're going to do some uh, something a little bit different here today. We're going to kick off what we're doing with interviews on an upcoming governor's race in Kentucky. You recall there's three off-year governor's races Mm -hmm. here. Uh, One's in Mississippi, one's in Louisiana, one's in Kentucky. The one that everybody's got their eye on right now is is in Kentucky because it's held by a Democrat, this guy, Andy Beshear. I mean, it's an insult that in Kentucky there's a Democrat governor. Absolutely insane. And so we've invited uh, all the major candidates in that primary, which is in three weeks, to come on the show and make their pitch. And uh, the first one out of the gates, accepted right away, want to show up, was our, our good pal, friend of the program, the Attorney General there, Daniel Cameron. Here he is. I want to welcome to the program somebody you've heard here before and undoubtedly have heard of before. He is the Attorney General for the Commonwealth of Kentucky, Daniel Cameron. Welcome. Josh, thank you for having me, man. Appreciate being on the program. Uh, listen, man, we've been following everything. Obviously, we're huge fans of of what you've been up to, and and we're personal friends beyond that. Uh, but you have uh, been in a serious undertaking. You're running for governor. Running for governor, running hard. we got about uh, three weeks left until the primary, and so uh, we feel good about our position, but we're going to keep working hard all the way through the finish line. Yeah, I mean, one of the things I love about Kentucky politics is that they have a relatively early primary, and particularly when you have an incumbent 
Democrat, in this case, Andy Bashir, who, holy smokes, I don't know if there is a governor in this country who's more ideologically out of step with the state they're supposed to represent than this guy. It's crazy, man. And, you know, there was no better sign of that when he vetoed legislation that would have protected women's sports from biological males. And the list just goes on and on. I mean, he shut our state down for nearly two years during the pandemic. Uh, he has opposed legislation that would keep kids from doing gender transition sur- surgeries before 18. I mean, essentially allowing children to mutilate themselves. So, I mean, this guy has been out of step with Kentucky. Uh, and I'm hoping to correct that uh, come November this year, my friend. Yeah, you sure are. Um, it's funny. You know, Kentucky, like a lot of states, they've had a leftward drift in the media and the distribution networks of information are not terrific as a result of that. And Bashir is somebody who, you know, from all intents and purposes, you see him on the news, sounds like a pretty reasonable guy. And then you start looking at the stuff that you were talking about, right? And yeah. It's like people don't know about it, and then all of a sudden they figure it out, and it's like, holy smokes, this guy is just entirely out of step. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, again, it's it's. I mean, it runs the gamut in terms of shutting churches down during the midst of the pandemic, telling they people they couldn't leave the state during the midst of the pandemic, uh, shutting down small businesses shutting down schools for nearly two years and we're now experiencing learning loss because because of it and look if you were a parent during the midst of uh covid or uh expressed any concern about the curriculum that your kids were learning and you went to your school board to complain about it the department of justice josh as you know labeled parents of domestic terrorists our (laughs) governor said nothing and then and then the even more crazy thing is right now at the Department of Education here in Kentucky, there is a commissioner, Jason Glass, that said that if you are a teacher and you've expressed any concern about gender ideology flowing into our classrooms, then you need to find another job. Jason oh. Glass, yeah, it's it's brutal. Jason Glass, appointed by a Board of Education that was appointed by Andy Bashir. These folks have uh, an ideology that is inconsistent with our state. And my, my response to Jason Glass is that teachers don't need to find another job. Andy Bashir and Jason Glass need to find another job. Yeah. And that's what we're hoping to do in November. Yeah, absolutely. It sounds like a good place to start for me. I think most of our audience uh, nationally probably got to know you best during your RNC convention speech and uh, your subsequent then endorsement for this race by President Trump. Uh, you sort of exploded onto the national scene, which is, you know, I mean, look, you're a relatively young guy, but but you got involved early and have been working your way up and now see a new opportunity. But you've got a national following at this point. Well, you know, look, we've uh, certainly been honored to serve as the attorney general of Kentucky for these last three years. And look, I've just been trying to stand up for our constitutional rights and do what's right by the men, women, and children of our 120 counties. Frankly, I don't care if the folks on CNN or MSNBC disparage me. I'm going to keep working hard uh, for our people, whether uh, they talk bad about me, whether they protest on my front lawn, whatever they do, I'm still going to work hard for the folks here in Kentucky. And that's the type of leadership you need because make no, make no mistake about it, the left is trying it's hardest to infiltrate and destroy our value system here in Kentucky. And we've got to have a governor that's going to push back against this, that's going to stand up for the values of our Commonwealth 
and again, fight back against what the Biden administration and the far left are trying to bring into Kentucky. Yeah, no question about it. You hit the ground running. I know that you've been deeply involved in issues like opioids, crime, clearly. I mean, big, big issue everywhere. Tell us a little bit about what you've been working on. Well, look, the big thing we've been working on is trying to make sure that uh, we we bring money into the state to fight the opioid epidemic. Um, fentanyl is ravishing our, or just destroying our communi- communities. And we lost 2,250 individuals based on the most recent report we got from the Office of Drug Control Policy here in Kentucky. And 70% of that was because of fentanyl. Uh, and so I'm proud of the fact that we brought in nearly $900 million to the state to fight the opioid epidemic. And I've been holding town halls or forums across the Commonwealth to talk about fentanyl, but not only talk about it, find issue or find solutions to this issue. Uh, and so proud of the work we've been doing there. Obviously, we've been defending constitutional rights. I'll tell you, just last week, um, we got a ruling um, from a federal court uh, that basically said that the EPA and its waters of the United States rule, the WOTUS rule, that the Biden administration was trying to push uh, on our farmers here in Kentucky, that rule has essentially been held unconstitutional in Kentucky because we went to federal court and said that it was unconstitutional. And so we're fighting every day uh, to stand up for the rights and the values of our citizens. I'm going to continue to do that during the remainder of this term and hope uh, that uh, I've got a chance as the next governor. And the other thing that I'll say is when it comes to crime, you know, folks talk a lot about the violent crime surge that we've had in Louisville, Kentucky, but yet they sit on their hands and do nothing. Last week, I said that we need to put a Kentucky state police post yeah, in Louisville, I heard Kentucky. Yeah. yeah, in Louisville, Kentucky, because again, uh, what we've done for the past 50 years or so, that's not going to cut it anymore. We've got to have leadership that is willing to say and do the hard things. Look, law enforcement uh, uh, in Louisville, uh, we can help them from the state. And I want to be a governor that doesn't sit on his hands like Andy Bashir has done over these last three years while violent crime continues to skyrocket. We've got to have a governor that's willing to jump into the fray, jump into these hard issues uh, so that we can make a meaningful change for people, not only in Louisville, but across Kentucky. Yeah, no, I noticed that debate. It caught my eye because I I, I found it fascinating that the Democrats, Bashir amongst them, uh, they basically responded by saying, well, I guess that means he doesn't trust the Louisville Police Department. And I thought, well, here's a crowd that basically used the, the Breonna Taylor tragedy to cuddle up with a whole bunch of defund the police oh, yeah. and reform the, you know, all kinds of just nonsense anti-law enforcement discussion. And now all of a sudden they're the ones that oh, have sure. undying trust in the Louisville Police Department. <laughs> and, and what's even And what's even more ludicrous is that if you drive 40 minutes south, from Louisville, Kentucky. There's a Kentucky State Police Post in Hardin County, where I grew up. Hardin County has the Elizabethtown Police Department. Nobody says that because there's a Kentucky State Police Post in Hardin County that we don't have confidence in the Elizabethtown Police Department. It's a crazy (laughs) notion. And this governor is completely wrong on this issue. But again, it reflects a governor that is uh, unwilling to do anything to help with the violent crime issue. He sat on his hands. He'll continue to do so if we don't make a change in the governor's office. Yeah, well, I'm looking for, forward to him being held accountable for the last four years. I know that's something you you will do. Now, the good Absolutely. news and the bad news for you uh, in this race is that the Republican Party in Kentucky uh, in the last 15, 20 years went from 
you know, trying to field good candidates, trying to compete on a state by state level. And and then all of a sudden now it is a behemoth and every nomination is one to be battled uh, tooth and nail for. And there are good people and good candidates. And and you're in the midst of a primary with, you know, I mean, people that you've been your friends. Yeah. Yeah. It's a it's a big primary with a lot of folks in it. And, you know, oftentimes you, you think you're um you know, you're all interviewing for the same job and you happen happen to be friends. But I think what differentiates our candidacy from the other uh, candidates in the race is that we've got a track record, we're not just running on ads. We're running on a track record of standing up for constitutional rights, bringing money into the state to fight the opiate epidemic, uh, having a strong pro-life record. Um, we have, again, consistently over these last three years done what others wouldn't do, and that's stand up and confront these big challenges uh, and when we're seeing strong numbers in the polls and we're getting good endorsements from across uh, the uh, the spectrum in terms of the Republican Party, obviously, you've got Tea Party, you've got Liberty, you've got Trump. We've got folks in all of those. Yeah, we got a little um, bit of everything. A little bit yeah, of everything yeah, in Kentucky. We, There's no monolithic that's right. Republican Party there. You got to go talk to no. everybody. Amen. Amen. And we feel like we are, are bridging those different factions which is going to be important not only for the win in the primary, but also for our ultimate mission, which is to beat Andy Bashir in the fall. Yeah. And, and one of the things that's been happening here in recent years because of, of folks like you and, and those around you is that the Republican Party has now taken over a registration advantage in Kentucky and and people who had long identified mostly in the in the east and and some in the west long identified as as democrats southern democrats daddy's daddy um, daddy's granddaddy all were democrats and then now all of a sudden yeah. those registration that's changed and you know i mean I, I bet you're spending a lot of time out east out west going to talk to a whole bunch of people that 10 years ago uh probably wouldn't have given us the time of day that's precisely right, man. And, and you know this, why this is the case is because the, the Democrat Party has gotten so far left that folks here in Kentucky cannot relate to a party that wants to defund the police, uh, that is all about um, um, transgender ideology, that wants to have woke and CRT uh, forced into our schools. No one here in Kentucky can relate to that. And that's just not something that we're okay with. And that's why we see uh, overwhelming numbers wanting to join the Republican party here in Kentucky. It's so, it's so wild, you know, having spent an inordinate amount of time in Kentucky, you know, you expect the, the CRT stuff, the, the transgenders that you expect that in like California, you know, you expect it in some upper Midwest States that sort of have had this long populist liberalist uh, view. Like in Kentucky, man, you really got to work hard to find somebody who's going to agree with you on any of that stuff. You do. And it's unfortunate that that, that person happens to be in our governor's office That's right now. I, because it's wild. It's, it's wild. And, uh, you know, we now, and that's why I tell people 2023 is a transformational moment for Kentucky, because we now have an opportunity uh, to write the ship. And we can say as a Commonwealth, what direction we we want to go in. We can either say we want leadership that reflects the values of men, women, and children of all 120 counties, or we can say that we're content to have leadership whose mere presence in the governor's office emboldens the far left. And the longer Andy Bashir sits in the governor's office, the longer the opportunity is for these woke ideologies, for CRT, for the defund the police notion, these crazy protests to continue to happen here in Kentucky. 
again, we've got to stand up to that as citizens and say enough is enough. Uh, and I'm trying to lead that effort. I'm trying to lead that that front and uh, hope that we can push them out in November. Yeah, a, a radically normal point of view, in my opinion. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I, I will say this. So every so often you have sort of bellwether elections that uh, portray what is likely to happen in the future. And many times it comes in these off year elections, you know, you get mm-hmm. the, uh, the Virginia governor's race, for example, last year mm-hmm. or in 20, uh, 2021, rather you have, you know, people trying to extrapolate out the Wisconsin situation with that Supreme court race. But I don't think there's any question that the Kentucky governor's race for an incumbent Democrat governor holds certain weight here for the party oh, yeah. nationwide and everybody's going to be watching what's happening here to see if somebody like Andy Bashir can continue to compete in a in a reddish state um against high quality talent and yeah. I, I have to imagine everybody's tuning into this man this is the big show i mean there are three governors races in the country this year it's mississippi louisiana uh, in Kentucky, I, I have to believe that Tate Reeves is going to uh, win yeah. re-election in Mississippi. I think Jeff Landry, uh, my colleague as an attorney general, is going to be in strong position to win in Louisiana. So all of the interest and all the the money is going to flow to Kentucky because this, in many ways, is a bellwether for 2024. And that's why I hope you know your listeners uh, decide to jump into this race and invest in this race because we have got to set things right here in Kentucky and say to the rest of the nation uh, that we uh, we desperately need a governor who reflects our values. We want somebody that reflects our values. Uh, and we are not going along with this far left ideology that's trying to pervade different parts of our country. And so, yeah, this is a huge race with huge implications. That's why, again, whether it's in this program or talking to people across our country, uh, I want to get interested and invested in this race here in Kentucky. This truly is uh, an inflection point for our nation uh, and is going to be a bellwether for 24. Yeah, no, I have no question about it. So, I mean, look, I've known you a long time. I know you're a nice guy. I know you're an incredibly talented guy. I know you're dedicated for uh, to, to doing what you're doing. What was always a little unclear to me, Daniel, because I I've also do this for a living, is like, is this really nice guy? Like, is he able to take a punch? Right. <laughs> well, I feel like now after the last couple of months and you've been dive bombed with a whole bunch of ads accusing you of everything under the sun. I, th- I feel like I've answered that question. Oh, man. Look, I, I can counter punch with the best of them. And, uh, <laughs> you know, look, uh, you know, opponent in this race has spent five million dollars attacking me and our, our, our poll numbers are still standing strong. And look. You know, I've I've said uh, repeatedly that, um, you know, I've got a, a stiff spine and I will take the slings and arrows that come along with leadership. And I've done that over the last three years. You know, somebody that hasn't done anything these last three years who's just running on ads, you know, I can take them on just as easily. And so I'm I'm in this thing. I'm, I'm ready to, to dig down in the trenches and fight this thing all the way to May 16th, which is our primary date. Yeah, you got you got a few weeks to go. Uh, I imagine that you're going to be in your car going to just about every corner of Kentucky over the next three weeks. Hey, man, we are uh, in uh, I'm in uh, Ashland tonight. Uh, I'll be uh, all over the state this this uh, week. And yes, it's uh, from east to west to northern Kentucky to south central Kentucky. I mean, we are we are hitting the road and trying to get to as many places as possible. Look, we don't 
there's a self-funder in this race. We don't have as much money as she does, uh, but we are able to get our message out uh, and we're up on television and uh, we're going to continue to work hard through the course of these next three weeks. My wife, Mackenzie, was in Jackson County last Thursday uh, for me because I had to be in northern Kentucky for an event. So this is a team effort man. we are we're working hard to make sure we're in a position to win on May 16th and again, accomplish our ultimate goal, which is to win in November and retire Andy Bashir and, and retire the Bashir folks yeah. from elected office. We've obviously... Uh, you know, we had Steve Bashir. Now we've got Andy Bashir. This has got to end. And we've <laughs> got to say that we, we've got to say that we we want conservative leadership to reflect our values, and we've got a chance to do that this year, brother. Yeah, I you had a a very early endorsement from a very big place uh, with President yeah. Trump. I saw that was in your your latest set yeah. of advertising. Uh, I was there the day you first met uh, President. You were my man, and and I got to say. Uh, he pretty clearly fell in love with you right away. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's, it's been great, man. And, uh, you know, I've been so grateful for his support and, you know, not only in this race, but in 2019 as well. And through the duration of my term, he's been a strong supporter and, and been very appreciative. And obviously I'm supporting him and his, his race for uh, president, but this is in, you know, this is an important uh, race and, uh, President Trump understands that we need a fighter in Kentucky that's going to stand up for our values. He sees that in me, and that's why he endorsed me. He endorsed me, even though, again, there's another person in this race who worked for him. She even talked six months before getting in the race that he was going to endorse her. You know, he endorsed me, and uh, Kelly Craft's campaign has been scrambling ever since. I, I imagine that's a topic of some conversation. Uh, uh, <laughs> Just a little bit. <laughs> I imagine I saw So I know you've done a number of debates. I saw that there was, I, I guess you can call it a debate. Uh, you didn't, you didn't go to it and I don't blame you because it was that KSR Kentucky uh, uh, where they broadcast all the ba basketball stuff. And there's this guy, Matt Jones, who's basically threatened to run as a, a Democrat for every office under the sun over the last few years. And it's always confounded me how somehow he's become a part of the political discussion in Kentucky, I watched that debate. Uh, I think you made yeah. a choice. That was like a public access gone wrong. Yeah, man. Look, look. If if, if there's the choice between a cattle call from Matt Jones and <laughs> being at a at being at a fentanyl forum in Leslie County, I'm always going to choose the fentanyl forum. I'm the top law enforcement officer of the state. The opioid and fentanyl, and this is my point. You know, a lot of candidates in this race are going to be talking about fentanyl, going to be talking about opioids, but they've done nothing, nothing to deal with the issue. I am weekly having fentanyl forums, bringing money into the state, talking to officials, talking to people that have been impacted, mothers, fathers, families, talking to folks that have been impacted by this. And again, if the choice is between going for, to a cattle call with Matt Jones, a, a spectacle in many ways. I mean, look, the Democratic Party here in Kentucky is already using footage from that debate to, you know, attack the Republicans that were there. Uh, if it's, I think if the that's the purpose of it, right? Yeah, I mean. yeah. And so if the choice is between that and talking to the families that have been impacted by fentanyl, I'm always going to choose to talk to families that have been hurt by this epidemic. Well, listen, Daniel, one of the bright, talented guys uh, in this party right now, and I have no doubt that you're going to have an incredible future um, in, in whatever it is that you intend to do. Tell our listeners where they can go help you out if they're interested. 
Man, uh, I appreciate that. Uh, please, uh, if you all want to help, certainly be grateful. You can go to CameronForKentucky.com. Uh, we've got a list of priorities on there. There's ways to donate and contribute at CameronForKentucky.com. I'd be grateful, again, to Josh's earlier point. This is a big race. It's going to take a lot of money. We'd be grateful for your help. Yeah, no, no question about it. And the Democrats are going to come in and they are going to be spending millions to try to protect one of their governor's seats, especially one where they should never have had it in the first place. Uh, Daniel Cameron, thanks for all you're doing. Don't be a stranger. Let's stay in touch. All right, brother. Thank you so much. Man, he is so good. And obviously, this is a guy we've known for a number of years, used to actually work with him back in the day. Um, I think he's got a really, really bright future ahead of him. Yeah. And I mean, this is a really big election. As I was saying in the interview, there are moments during off-year elections and things like that that sort of give the entire atmosphere a good feeling about where things are headed. Mm -hmm. Yunkin, Mm -hmm. right, in Virginia. This is one of those things. If you knock off a Democratic incumbent in an off year, um, who is you know considered by Democrats as one of their most talented young governors, uh, I think that's a pretty good sign going into 2024. Daniel's the first one. Uh, he's got a slight lead in the polls. Uh, we've invited Kelly Kraft. Uh, we've in- invited Ryan Quarles. Uh, hopefully we have them on here soon and everybody can get a good idea of what is gonna be a really, really important election. Yeah. Well, you know what? I think we did it, guys. I think we did it. Absolute banger of an episode, if I may say so myself. Thank you so much uh, to Daniel Cameron for coming on the show. Thank you so much to the Minions. So, until next time, Minions, keep the faith, hold the line, and own the libs. We'll see you on Thursday. Stay ruthless. Stay ruthless.